be seated. Our scripture reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Hear now the word of the Lord. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. May God bless our understanding of this holy scripture, and let us remain seated as we sing together hymn number 581, Lead Us from Death to Life. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, one more time. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. First they sing, and then they pray, and then they happily walk away. That's how I learned the rhyme as a child, and it is more or less how I experience the church. It is an accurate description of a community of faith. We gather, we worship, we happily walk away empowered to be the church in the world. Yes, sometimes our songs are sorrowful, and sometimes our prayers take the form of lamentations. But the people gather together, bearing one another's burdens, engaging in shared mission, and praising God. It doesn't always happen like the rhyme. Though. Sometimes it's more like this. Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, once again we find our people. First they sing, and then they pray, and then they get into a terribly divisive argument about a theological and or political issue, and they all storm away angrily. And some of them never come back because they go gather under some other steeple with people who agree with them about the theological and or political issue. That one didn't, I didn't think that would go over as well in first steps. It doesn't rhyme. It happens in local congregations. And this happens in denominations. Despite the fact that Jesus once prayed that the church would be one, we are not one. The body of Christ is full of 
fractures. I confess that I am torn between feeling grief and relief about this. Yes, it is tragic that the church is scarred with schisms. But no, I don't particularly want to be one with that Kansas congregation known for protesting funerals. One way to avoid the possibility of conflict within a church is to do just that, avoid. Steer clear of any topic that might create division. I remain unconvinced that this is a faithful way forward. After all, it's pretty hard to be a church if we're politely avoiding talking about religion. Frankly, it's pretty hard to be a church if we're politely attempting to avoid talking about politics. God doesn't really go for compartmentalization. I mean, God didn't merely establish Israel as a family of faith. God established Israel as a nation, complete with laws and customs and kings. And as for Jesus, there is no denying it. Jesus was political. One prominent New Testament teacher concurs. He writes, Jesus was political. His preaching was tinged with political statements. His healings carried massive political implications for the ways we structure our world and understand our neighbor. His execution was of the kind reserved for acts of political disruption. That is, he died on a cross because the political authorities saw him as a threat to the political structures and order of the day. If our faith in Jesus truly shapes the way we encounter our neighbor, our faith will inform our political convictions. But however can we deepen our faith in Jesus and discern how we are called to respond to our neighbors if we can't work these things out together in community. Truly, if we are to have a meaningful life together as a community of faith, we must take the risk of wading past the shallow waters of small talk. Let us turn our attention back to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. We are charged to love our neighbors. To love our neighbors, we need to know our neighbors and to let them know us. Paul knows that if we are truly to be in relationship with one another, members, of one another. We must be willing to speak the truth. Likewise, we must listen 
with open minds and hearts. We must encounter one another as beloved children of God, as fellow neighbors in the precinct of grace, as fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. Put away from you all bitterness, Paul writes, and wrath and anger. And oh boy, do we live in a time of extraordinary bitterness and wrath and anger. I'm going to state three objective facts. One, Donald Trump is president of the United States of America. Now, when I shared a draft of this sermon with a colleague, he wondered if I should cut that line. I mean, we all know Donald Trump is president. Is it unnecessarily provocative to bring this up in the pulpit? I know some of you heard that name and felt defensive. Is the preacher going to malign a president you respect? And some of you heard that name and felt a wave of indignation. Perhaps you hoped I would go on to denounce a president you can hardly stand. Frankly, the reality to make the microphone cut out. <laughs> the fact that the mere name of the President of the United States of America is enough to raise everybody's hackles is precisely why I kept that line. Our reactions to that first objective fact lead us right into the second fact. The nation is deeply divided. This rancor is unlikely to dissipate as we acknowledge the third fact. We will soon be in the midst of another contentious election year. One political science expert noted, the United States are not so united. A growing body of research points to a deep disunity between Democrats and Republicans and policy preferences, values, and tolerance of the other side's views. As nearly as 2010, social scientists conducted, conducted surveys that revealed nearly half of all Republicans would be somewhat or very unhappy if their child married a Democrat, and nearly one-third of surveyed Democrats had a similar response. These results represented an approximately 1,000% increase from the level of people reporting this view in the 1960s. It seems that Americans feel more politically divided today than at any other time in recent history. This divide is not merely manifest in preferences regarding the political leanings of future in-laws. I recently left a brief, appreciative comment on an article in my hometown newspaper. 
and was promptly besieged by responses. Perfect strangers called me an idiot and a dummy. And then another set of perfect strangers showed up to call the first set of perfect strangers idiots and dummies. I wish I could say I was surprised, but I wasn't. It is bewildering to see the way human beings dish out slander and malice with absolutely no consideration for the dignity or even the humanity of their targets. It is one thing to be passionate about our convictions, to believe that one policy is a better public expression of love for neighbor than another policy. But it's another thing entirely to believe that those who have discerned differently are evil. To put it another way, as Paul did, be angry, but do not sin. A few years ago, a young man sent a diatribe to an advice columnist asking for help dealing with his father, whose politics were diametrically opposed to his own. The young man clearly expected that this advice columnist would commiserate with his plea. Don't get me wrong, he wrote, I love him no matter what, but how do I explain to him that his politics are turning him into a monster, destroying the environment and pushing away the people who care about him? The columnist took him to task. He responded to the young man with a dare. Try to find a single instance in your letter where you referred to your dad as a human being, a person, or a man. There isn't one. He went on to write a beautiful epistle. We must be tireless in our efforts to see things from the point of view we most disagree with. We must make endless efforts to try and understand the people we least relate to, and we must, at all times, force ourselves to love the people we dislike the most. And this will preach. This is an advice columnist in the Village Voice. Don't feel the need to always pick a side. And if you do pick a side, pick the side of love. These words echo the wisdom of Paul, admonishing all of us to be kind to one another and tender-hearted. So maybe it's too hard to love the person who calls you a dummy on the internet. Maybe it's not quite possible yet to cultivate tender-heartedness toward whichever elected official consistently promotes policies that infuriate you. We could start here in the church under the steeple. We could pick the side of love with the people with whom we sing hymns, the people for whom we pray in times of joy and sorrow. We can practice speaking the truth 
And we can practice listening to one another with open minds. We can act with courage and kindness. We can hold deep convictions in one hand. And we can grasp the hand of a neighbor who is holding very different convictions in their other hand. In an epoch of ugliness, we can bear witness to a more excellent way. May it be so. Dear God, may it be so. Amen.